Uh, it actually goes down through verse 10, but we won't get that far tonight. Uh, let's just look at this uh, uh, in verse 3 here. Uh, he's talking about these false teachers. And in the middle he says, Whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. Okay, God is a God of truth. He's called a God of truth. In Isaiah 65 and verse 16, the psalmist says, Justice and judgment are habitation of thy throne. Mercy and truth shall go before thy face. That's Psalm 89, 14. In Psalm 146 and verse 6, the psalmist says, God keepeth truth forever. In Psalm 57 and verse 10, he says, For thy mercy is great unto the heavens, and thy truth unto the clouds. A very familiar verse in Psalm 119 and verse 160 says, Thy word is truth from the beginning. Psalms 86, Psalm 86 verse 15, he says of God that he is plenteous in truth. All the way back to the book of Revelation, and you have one of the great statements about God given in chapter 15, verse 3. And there it says, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are thy ways. So scripture also says, looking at it from the opposite angle, God cannot lie. Titus 1 and verse 2, Hebrews 6 and verse 18. Uh, it says in Romans 3 and verse 4, Let God be true and every man a liar. God is true. And God speaks only the truth because God cannot lie. And so God has revealed his truth in the scripture. Jesus, in praying to the Father regarding believers, said in John 17, 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The scripture, the Bible, the book that we have open before us tonight is the truth of God. Uh, the true God has spoken truly his true word. I don't know how many times I can say it, but it's, it's true. Uh, and that means as a consequence, he wants the word communicated truly. He uh, wanted it to be communicated entirely and exactly as he gave it, with no omissions or no deviation, because God is true and he's given a true word. He expects it to be truly proclaimed. On the other hand, the adversary of God and Christ is the devil. In John eight forty four, Jesus said the devil is a liar and the father of it. And so wherever you have the enterprise of Satan, you're going to have an attack on the truth. Proverbs 6 and verse 19, it says that God, because he is the God of truth, hates a false witness. A false witness who utters lies. It says in Proverbs 19 and verse 5 that a liar will not escape the wrath of God. It says in Proverbs 19 and verse 9, that a liar will perish. And then again, at the end of the book of Revelation, God has put a final seal on his truth. 
Revelation 21 and verse 8. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And then Revelation 21 verse 27, it says, And there shall be no and no wise enter into it, that is, heaven, anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie. Revelation 22.15 For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. Obviously God cares about the truth. He is the God of truth. He always speaks truth and he's revealed his truth in his word. He expects to be proclaimed it to be proclaimed exactly and entirely truthfulness with which it's inspired. He expects men to speak truth. Now, when we would then assume that God is very much against liars, wouldn't you say? I mean, we just kind of scratch the surface of what God has to say about his word and about his character. But there's something beyond that. It's one thing to tell a lie, it's a far greater thing to teach lies as if they were truth. Isaiah 9, verse 14 and 15, Scripture teaches that God will cut off the prophet who teaches falsely. And that word, that phrase, cut off, always means to destroy. And Isaiah 28, verse 15, in essence, says God will destroy those who have made falsehood their refuge and concealed themselves in deception. It says in the 17th verse of the same 28th chapter in Isaiah that God will sweep away the lies and sweep away the liars in judgment. And then in verse 22, he says he'll bring them upon them devastating destruction. You go to Jeremiah, and you find in Jeremiah 9.3, it says that God will bring judgment on Judah because she listened to lying prophets. Verse 5, lies, it says that lies and not truth prevail in the land. They've taught their tongue to speak lies. Jeremiah 14, 14, then the Lord said unto me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I sent them not, neither have I commanded them, neither speak or spake they unto them. They prophesy unto you a false vision and divination and a thing of naught and the deceit of their heart. Jeremiah 23, 25 and 26, I have heard what prophets said, the prophecy uh, they prophet, that prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall this be in the heart of the prophets that prophesy lies? Yea, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart. And then in Jeremiah 23, 14, God says, I will destroy the prophets who have committed adultery and taught lies. Same thing is found in Ezekiel chapter 13. Same thing is found in Zechariah 13. And it goes on and on like that throughout the Old Testament. Because God is a God of truth. It's one of his attributes. And it sets him against all liars, particularly those who misrepresent him and misrepresent his word with their lies. To tell a lie is a serious sin. 
To teach lies is even more serious. To teach lies as if they were the truth of God is the most serious defection from truth. And so, this passage right here in 2 Peter chapter 2 is, uh, tells us how that God's going to treat these lying prophets, how he's going to judge them. Now, if you read this verse here, these verses, if, you, if we would actually go from verse 3 through t- verse 10, it's really one long sentence. And believe me, it's a, it's a hot sentence. It's a white-hot sentence. It's serious business. And it's why it seems like Peter doesn't take a breath. <coughs> There's really nowhere to put the punctuation. It's one long conditional sentence. All the conditions kind of sort of began there after verse 3 and verse 4. And the conclusion comes down in verse 9 and it says... If, 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 if. And then this is one long, white, hot, heated sentence. It's a heated with the fury of God as Peter lays out the judgment of false teachers. A long, conditional sentence. Now, we've already introduced, uh, been introduced to these false teachers. You remember, uh, we kind of had this basic outline of their portrait in verses 1 through 3. We learned a lot about them, kind of a sketch of them. We got to the middle, we get to the middle of verse 10, and we go from there to the end of the chapter, and the, the sketch kind of gets filled in. You know how you just kind of draw a little drawing and, and, and so forth, and maybe then uh, you color it in. Well, that's... Uh, that's what uh, Peter's doing here. He's sketching out in verses 1 through 3, and then the rest of the chapter, he just kind of fills in all the color. But here he is telling about the judgment. He's mentioned it already in verse 1. He said they're bringing swift destruction upon themselves, and so he stops to tell us a little about this swift destruction. And so as we look at this section, and we're only going to look at a part of the section tonight, we're going to see uh, there are going to be uh, some points here made by Peter, the promise of their judgment, the precedent of their judgment, and the pattern. Now, I know there are people who don't want to believe this. There's a man by the name of Harvey Cox, somewhat well-known secular author, he wrote a play called The Feast of Fools. And what he does in this play, he presents Christianity as a comedy. And Jesus Christ, he pictures as a clown. Because he said, neither are to be taken seriously. Now, some of you probably remember Ted Turner. He's the founder of CNN. And uh, he lines up with this Harvey Cox, and he said this, the problem in our world today is religion. Quoting him, he says, Christianity with the, the book of Revelation predicted the world's going to be destroyed by fire and Armageddon. No wonder we're so pessimistic about things. We're carrying this terrible burden that we're all born evil. We just 
we're just rotten and no good and Christ had to come down and he had to die on the cross for us so that we, with the spilling of his blood, our sins could be washed away. I mean, Christ was a great guy, but I don't want him to die for me. He said, I used to be real religious until I really started thinking about it. Come on, ease up, lighten up a little. I don't really want to go to heaven anyway. I don't want to walk on streets of gold and, and gold prices are going down, you know. The streets would have to be platinum to make me happy. Maybe they should put toxic waste in heaven because if we get it off the earth and ship it up to heaven, it's not going to hurt people in heaven. Well, it's pretty blasphemous talk there. But he's been a, a leader you know, in our society. And there are a lot of people who want to mock the reality of future judgment, but Peter was very serious. Serious when he wrote what he wrote here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And any man is a fool who doesn't understand that God will not only judge false teachers, but he'll judge along with them all who lived and brought, bought their deception. So I said we're going to look at some of the points that are made by Peter here. And the first one is the promise of their judgment. The promise of their judgment. In verse 1 at the end, says uh, the false prophets there bring upon themselves swift destruction. And then at the end of verse 3, we also see uh, this here, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. There's the promise. It's given to us twice. In verse 1, in verse 3, they're promised condemnation. As we look at verse 3, we see their judgment now of a long time. What do you mean by that, Peter? Well, though false teachers are not yet judged... That is, one, uh, that is the ones that were, are alive at the time of Peter. The ones that are alive any time, someone uh, reads this, including now, though they have not yet been judged, their judgment has been planned long ago. It's been planned long ago. That's what he's saying. Now, what does he mean by that? What is he saying? Well, very simply understood is this. The judgment of liars and deceivers and false prophets and false teachers is all vested in the nature of God, who, as we've been telling you, is the God of truth. I hope we understand that. Because God, by nature, is a God of truth. He will judge all liars and deceivers. And this judgment is vested in the eternality of his nature as true. He's true and holy. He's a judge of all who pervert truth. So God, by his very nature as truth, has set into motion, and this was set into motion long ago, that these who would falsify his word would be judged. So their judgment was established long ago. And it's not an idle judgment. That is, it has not just become inert, you know, we're just sitting around a long time. Uh, their destructions are not asleep. That's what he talks about there. Uh, lingereth not. 
slumbereth not. It's not something that's just asleep, but, and the executioner has not fallen asleep, but it's inevitable, it's coming. So let's focus on what, uh, what Peter says here, secondly, on the precedent for their judgment. Now somebody might say, well, are you sure about this? Are you sure that God is not just too loving and a little bit too, you know, too gracious, too kind, too forgiving, to just, you know, not just kind of sweep it all away? And are you sure that God's really going to react in a swift and devastating destruction against those who lie and teach falsehood? Well, yes. Peter tells us why. Verse 4, for if God spared not the angels that sinned, and we go down to verse 5, and spared not the old world, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. In other words, he drowned them all except Noah and his family. And verse 6, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, when they sinned. So if God did not spare the angels, did not spare the old world, did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you think he's going to spare false teachers? See, that's the point. That's the precedent. He gives us three classic illustrations out of the book of Genesis, and they are the precedent. They are the precedent for the final judgment of liars and deceivers, false prophets, false teachers. And the first one is that he spared not the angels. Now, who are these angels? Well, there are those who would teach that this is connected with Genesis 6 and refers to the sons of God mentioned there and that they were the angels. There's a lot of debate about that. And some have suggested that sons of God were fallen angelic creatures who descended to earth and married women, that is, daughters of men, and yet there's no scriptural basis for that. In fact, it would be biological, biologically impossible. Jesus himself indicated that the angelic realm is a sexless race not having reproductive ability. So Genesis 6 concerns that family which was leading to the coming of Christ, which would bring him into the world, that line intermarried with the world, with the line of Cain, and brought about a generation that was so sinful that God finally brought the flood upon them. That's what Genesis 6 is all about. And I don't think uh, this verse here in 2 Peter has any reference to that. We're told in Revelation 12 and verse 7, and there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought against uh, fought in his angels. Now, back in the past, there was a rebellion against God led by the creature we know today as Satan or the devil. He has many names. He's called the great deceiver. He's called a liar, uh, and uh, he's been a liar from the beginning. The creature rebelled against God, and there followed with him a great company of angels. Now, Peter tells us that some of the angels who rebelled were already in chains, they were already incarcerated, but some of them 
have not yet been brought into the place of being inoperative. They're still active in the world today. And I believe they're what we'd call demons that we read about in the Word of God. So this verse in 2 Peter is a reference to that which took place before man was put on earth when there was a rebellion against God. It was led by Satan. And so you notice the phrase there in verse 4, For if he spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. There's a, a word there that cast them into hell. Uh, it's the word in the Greek. It's this phrase, cast them into hell. That's all one word. It's tartar, tartarus. And uh, if we would transliterate it, we could, call, uh, we could say he tartarized them. Now, what does that mean? Well, he sent them to Tartarus. That's a kind of a funny name, but uh, when you see here, the translators have elected to translate it into the English word hell because that's what it was used to refer to. And uh, so it's, it's not talking about what you put on your fish when you go and eat out, okay? It's not tartar sauce. To be tartarized, that's what you do to your fish when you eat fish, but that's not what he's talking about here. Now, since no one discussed hell or preached about it or read about it or had been there, and since its punishments and torments were basically uh, unexplainable unless given some analogy, there had to be a word in that culture that they could use to describe something uh, about what hell was. And so you remember when Jesus talked about hell, he used the word Gehenna. Okay, because that was a a picture, a word of what picture was uh, of what hell was like. It was a word picture. Gehenna was the name for a valley where they uh, was the city dump of Jerusalem, and it was unending. It was continual burning, always burning all the time, and that was the picture that Jesus gave of hell, because hell is continually burning, inextinguishable flames of hell. So here, Peter uses the word, and actually this word Tartarus is a word from Greek mythology. The Greek said Tartarus was a place lower than Hades, the lowest place for the wicked, rebellious gods, and people were sent there to receive the worst judgment the lowest place of being a being could go. And the Jews eventually came to use the term to describe the place where fallen angels were sent. It was the lowest hell, the deepest pit, the most terrible place of torture and eternal suffering. So Peter uses this word as a vivid word picture from the Greek language of his time because his readers, both Gentiles and Jews, would understand its meaning. And so these angels had sinned. It says in verse 4, they were cast into Tartarus, or uh, they were tartarized into hell, the deepest part of hell. And then he says further in verse 4, having 
them delivered to chains of darkness. Now the word delivered here is used by the, by the way in the book of Acts a couple of times in verse 8, chapter 8, verse 3, it says committed. It used, it's, uh, uh, it's translated committed in verse, chapter 12, verse 4. It's, it's uh, translated delivered. But it's the turning over of a prisoner for imprisonment. They were turned over for imprisonment. And Tartarus here is a further describing the chains of darkness. Now, Jude, in the little book of Jude, verse 6, refers to imprisonment in chains. So here were some angels who sinned and were sent to the deepest hell into the chains of blackness to be kept there until the day of judgment. The, day, uh, the deepest place of torment. And they were held there, uh, the end of verse 4 says, reserved for judgment. They're like a prisoner who's been incarcerated and he's got to sit there in, in jail awaiting his final sentence. No bail. No way out. And yet it's a place that's only temporary in the sense that the day of judgment, they'll go to another place. And do you know what that place is? Well, Revelation 20 and verse 10 tells us that the devil and all his angels will be cast into what? The lake of fire. A lake of fire. And that's the final form of hell. Well, that's the first illustration of this judgment for false teachers. We'll have to come back next time. Stay tuned for the next episode of the judgments that Peter talks about. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time in the word of God. We know that uh, it's a very serious thing to be a false teacher or even trying to teach false doctrine as truth because your word talks about the truth so much, how you are a God of truth, and that uh, you will not tolerate, tolerate the, the uh, sin of false teaching. Lord, uh, we thank you for this time in the word tonight. Bless our time in prayer now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.